Welcome to the AGA Podcast, where we bring you small talk on big topics from within the world of gastroenterology. Thanks for being with us. Now let's get started. Hello, everyone. So excited that you are joining us for season two. And today we have a really neat episode with Dr. Jessica Corman and Erica Cohen, who are both private gastroenterologists at Capital Digestive Care, which is the largest gastroenterology group in the Mid-Atlantic states. And they both practice out of Washington, D.C. and Bethesda, Maryland. So they have a session for us talking about private practice, which I think seems to me during clinical training seems to be a black box because we're all pretty much trained in academic settings. And then once we graduate, you know, there's the option of academia or private practice. And private practice just seems like somewhere where you don't have a lot of experiences with. So I am so happy to have Dr. Corman and Dr. Cohen interview with Matt and Nina to talk about this unraveling, this black box of private practice, including um, a special topic to them, which is handling difficult patients. So without further ado, I'd like to bring on Jessica Corman and Erica Cohen. I'm Jessica Corman. I'm a clinical gastroenterologist in private practice in Washington, D.C. with Capital Digestive Care. I've been in practice for 11 years. I did my training at Mount Sinai and then at Montefiore. And I specialize in anal cancer screening and prevention and high-resolution anoscopy inflammatory bowel disease. I take care of a lot of patients with IBS and general gastroenterology. Hey, great. We also have Dr. Cohen here. Hi, yes. Erica Cohen. Uh, thank you for having me. I also work at Capital Digestive Care in D.C. I did my training at Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles, GI and also an IBD fellowship. And I came to Capital Digestive Care to focus on inflammatory bowel disease. I'm involved in the clinical trial program and the development of an IBD program in the community. But I also do general gastroenterology and also have a lot of complex IBS patients as well. We were just going to ask, since you obviously both came from highly academic programs, and that's usually what we're used to, how did you decide on a 100% clinical practice? At least for me, I do clinical research. So I have been involved in a major clinical trial and for anal cancer screening and prevention, but also some of the drug trials that our our practice has. We have a clinical research center. So we do participate in research. But for me, really, my interest in clinical medicine really has to do with, I don't really like bureaucracy. And I don't like, how should I put this? I, I want it to be Red my tape. own boss. Red tape. <laughs> I want to be my own boss. I don't want a lot of things between me and the patient as much as possible. I want that to be as few limitations as it can be. So to me, an academic medical center comes with red tape and a lot of constraints and teaching responsibilities, administrative responsibilities that I, which I, I have other responsibilities that are not clinical, but I just wanted to have more control over my, my practice. So Dr. Corman, you've been in practice for how long, just so we have the baseline? 11 years. And then Dr. Cohen, for yourself, you've been in for three years, is it? Correct. Almost. And so what drew you? Are you also involved in the research as the group or are you primarily in clinical practice? Yeah. So I do a little bit of both as well. And I think that's what's very interesting in private practice nowadays. There is opportunity to do some type of hybrid depending on where you are and what the values are of, of the group that you're with. 
I do the IBD program clinical trials. So we have anywhere from eight to 10 clinical trials for IBD patients in our research division. And I'm the PI or sub-investigator for these studies. And then during COVID, I was able to get an educational grant for educating patients on updates and doing focus groups on COVID information for our IBD patients. And we've been involved in equity in IBD program as well. So in doing abstracts and some of the COVID registries, vaccine registries for IBD and and doing some papers for that as well. So if that's an interest for someone who's going into private practice, there's definitely opportunities. It's just, you kind of need to seek them out. So in my practice, I do clinical work four days a week, and then I help with development of our infusion center, IBD program, and clinical trials one day a week. So how big is your practice and other folks that, you know, focus on liver and motility and other areas, advanced GI? Yeah, so it is a very big group. Capital Digestive Care has over 100 physicians in Virginia, D.C., and Maryland, but they're different subdivisions of the company. So each division kind of, it's like your own little pod of doctors. So some pods have more specialists and some are mostly general. But I think that's what's really cool is there's good communication between them in case you, it's very collegial in case there's a question or someone wants a second opinion. It's very easy for them to send me a message to review an IBD case or if someone wants to show a question or something for Jessica in terms of a perianal finding, you know, we're able to kind of help each other out in that respect to try and avoid some of the delays when you have to send patients to other institutions. So I know that Jessica was mentioning the avoidance of bureaucracy as one of the major draws for a practice like this, especially as such a unique hybrid practice as you guys are describing. So I think that's something great to keep in mind for people that are figuring out what they want to do. It doesn't mean it has to be all academic or all practice. There really are these hybrid things. So I think that's a great reminder. What was it for you that drew you into this hybrid practice? Was there something that you knew in fellowship that drew you here or is it something you kind of just found? Honestly, I feel like there's so many fantastic experts in inflammatory bowel disease that I probably honestly was not going to raise the ceiling. I don't feel like that's my sweet spot. I think my sweet spot is kind of educating other providers and patients. And hopefully I'm trying to kind of raise the floor, if you will, to improve community care, because it's, you know, when you get out into the community and you see how much at least inflammatory bowel disease there is, it's, it's completely different than, you know, even the most fantastic IBD centers. So there's just so much work to be done out in the community that I think I was could be more of a help in that respect. I mean, if you think about it, the majority of patients are taken care of in the community. So, you know, if you really, in terms of impact factor, you know, being in that milieu is really important. Being in the ivory tower doesn't, you know, you can teach people who are going out into the community, but being in the community, you, you really feels like you have a more direct impact. And I think that's kind of the positive, but also it comes with certain negatives there. You know, patients have such access to us. Sometimes I feel like the portal is an instant messenger. And so with that comes not just work, but expectations that I think that sometimes we're like, if you don't respond within a certain amount of minutes, you know, it's that we don't care. So I think it comes with Great benefits that we've described, but also it can add to the expectations that might not be reasonable to patients. Well, I don't know that academic gastroenterologists are immune from that. I mean, there are portals on every major system and and patients either, you know, it depends who you are. Some patients just understand that their provider isn't going to get back to them in a reasonable time frame. And 
some patients know that their provider is more responsive. And so they, it's, it depends on the expectations and how you, how you manage the patient's expectations. I think, I mean, if you respond to people's portal messages, you know, 10 times a day, which sometimes those of us who are very, what's the word, anal, not to be, no pun intended, but you know, two on brand, two on brand. Those of us who are very, let's say meticulous might be constantly checking our inbox and wanting to, you know, clean up, tie up all the loose ends and make sure everybody's tucked in, you know, but if you respond constantly, then the the patients really expect you to respond constantly. But, you know, it's sort of a finding our own balance between responsiveness and expectations and not letting it overrun our lives. So this is actually a great segue into, I think the main thing we wanted to engage the two of you with is that even in academic practice, and I know we were talking earlier that I'm only 50% clinical at this point, is it the evolution into my clinical practice, into your clinical practices really is a challenge. And I think one of the biggest challenges out there for people as they evolve from fellow to attending practitioner is really navigating these challenging relationships with patients. So I think what you both brought up is just kind of a glimpse at what can be the beautiful relationship we have with patients, but also sometimes the challenging one. So I think maybe to kick this off, I'm curious if you two, thinking back to your trainings, if there was one or two skills that you picked up that you think are incredibly beneficial in your clinical practice, that if you could kind of highlight for a trainee or a young practitioner that he, she, or they may be able to pick up. There's different reasons why somebody may be difficult, whether it's their personality or non-adherence to therapy or whether they just have a complex presentation. So I think we can think of it in those categories as well. We both do this, but I think it's important, you know, education, especially in our location, people are very educated. They're reading up on things. They've probably read everything before they've even come into the office and they know everything about me. And, you know, educating them on what you think their disease process is, what you think any tests and why do you think those tests are important? And then going through, you know, this would be my first recommendation for therapy. And if this doesn't work, you know, kind of giving them an algorithm or a tree that you've created for them and then give them a long-term goal and kind of a short-term goal. I'd like you to, maybe this is my problem. I'd like you to message me in two to three weeks. (laughs) Just give me, because I don't want them to feel like I'm abandoning them for three months, right? So why don't you give me a message in two to three weeks to give me an update on how this is going. And if, you know, and if we're having a partial response or a negative response, then we'll move to this X, Y, and Z. So we set the expectations on what the steps are. You'll let me know how the first steps are going, and then we'll follow up to do X, Y, and Z. So then I feel like there's a lot of satisfaction and a lot better adherence when they understand why you have to do, or recommended to do a certain test or a certain treatment and kind of their homework as well as my homework. And we're kind of doing this together. I think has been very beneficial, especially in inflammatory bowel disease patients who have been kind of reluctant to start therapy. Honestly, I think a lot of it is just time and going through everything very thoroughly and making sure that they feel like they have a partner in this. I agree a thousand percent. I mean, I think no matter how educated your patient is, I think they want to know what you think is going on. Sometimes they want you to tell them what you think is not going on. So I always ask the patients, you know, is there something you're afraid of or something? Is there something you need me to reassure you about? Is there something we have to say, you definitely don't have X to try to understand what is their real concern that is sort of driving their anxiety. And then again, I mean, it's really about 
listening to the patient, finding out what it is, really let them talk. I mean, a lot of times Eric and I are both our patients are coming to us where they're third, fourth, fifth, sixth gastroenterologist. And you're sort of thinking to yourself, you know, as you're going into the room, what could I possibly have to add to this case? And then when you, I get a sense of dread when I see that I'm that number consultant. And then I think I have to remind myself to have an open mind. I don't know what's happened before in terms of what those relationships have been like and what those providers have recommended and say, hey, maybe I will have a totally different approach. Let's just keep an open mind. And then I go in and we talk and, you know, often it's it's kind of surprising that you can sort of make little inroads. And sometimes it's just explaining to the patient, you know, what, for example, irritable bowel syndrome is. Some patients have been to see eight different gastroenterologists who keep telling them, oh, you just have IBS. Well, the patient's going like, well, it doesn't feel like, quote, just IBS to me. What is that? How do you know that's what I have? And what can we do about it? And oftentimes people don't really give them any a roadmap or a plan. So I just like Erica say, okay, we're going to try this. Send me a portal message in two to three weeks. I do the exact same thing because I don't have time. Well, so this is the issue. I can't see patients for follow-up every three weeks. I mean, it's not practical. So we do use the portal a lot as sort of a surrogate, not a surrogate, but as a mechanism to just sort of have a check-in for, you know, how is 10 milligrams of nortriptyline going? Does that, you know, how how did the low FODMAP elimination diet go? Are you responding to the Stolovra yet? Whatever it is, you know, we like little quick check-ins. And I think the patients appreciate that we're on the journey with them. One other thing that I thought of also is I kind of have my visits in a set format every time. And I think it's helpful. I say, you know, first off, I kind of give them an overview. First off, I'd love to hear any questions, concerns, things you want to focus on during this visit so I can make sure to adjust my discussion with you to address those points. Then I go through their past medical history if it's a new patient, go through all the records that I've already been through or try and fill in blanks that, that I don't know about. Then we talk about today, how are you feeling and go through all of their symptoms. And then we kind of talk about a plan moving forward. So I think it helps the patient know what to expect and then helps me tailor what we're going to discuss based on their questions or concerns. You know, oftentimes if it's a non-I, regardless, even IBD, I'll say, what what are you trying to get out of this? Or do you want reassurance that everything is okay? Do you want a medication to treat your symptoms? How do you think I can best help you? And so then I can kind of satisfy their concerns as we're going through. I think that's good. I think that helps empower patients and help them feel like they're part of the plan. It sounds like it's a lot of agenda setting early on and then laying out kind of the follow through so they have those kind of set expectations and it's a shared expectations. I think it sounds like we're also talking about shared decision making. Obviously, I'm steeped in like yes. a first year medical school course right now. So that terms like shared decision making and agenda setting are coming to my mind real early. That's what clinical medicine is all about, quite frankly. I mean, patients do not want you to just foist something on them. They want to have a conversation. Well, what are you prescribing me? What does that do? What are the side effects? I mean, they have a lot of you know concerns about what we're doing and some patients don't wanna take medication. Some patients really wanna take a more holistic view. Well, is there a way that I can work on my heartburn that's not a medication? Is there a way I can fix my IBS without taking something? You know, there's lots of, some people just want a pill too. That's more simple. However, you don't know what the patient really wants if you don't 
ask them where they're coming from. So the first step is understanding what their expectations are and whether or not you can meet those expectations. And so sometimes, you know, we have conversations with patients like, maybe I'm not the right doctor for you. This is who I am. You know, when someone comes in with their list of 50 naturopathic products and they come in with their GI film array and you look at it and they say, what, what do I do with my, with my altered microbiome? And you say, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure. That's not a validated test. And I'm not a naturopathic provider. So I can't, maybe I'm not the right person for you. For my candida. Right. The candida overgrowth. No, I mean, really, because I'm very clear from the beginning, as I'm sure Erica is, is that I'm willing to work outside the box, but really I'm trained in Western medicine and that's what I know. And I don't want to do things that I don't know anything about. So they would have to find another provider if they're looking for that approach. Nobody wants their time wasted. No. And I I think that's actually a a great question for the two of you is, and I think Nina, I'm sure you and I both had this where at some point a relationship may not be working between you and the patient, whether it's something we're bringing to the table, something they're bringing to the table. Have you had experiences where you've needed to end a patient-doctor relationship? And how do you go about that challenging conversation? And and in this setting, it's not a hostile breakup. It's more, this is not working. How do you have that difficult patient conversation? I haven't been successful at it yet. <laughs> As in they come back or they're just angry when You're they leave? You're the only one. Yes. For some yeah. reason, I don't know. They stay. I'm like, maybe we want a second, just a, you know, second set of eyes just to see. I feel like we're not making any headway. We're kind of stuck. We're not really seeing on the same page of where to go next. I think you need a set of eyes to kind of give you a better direction. I often employ the same approach. It doesn't always work. But sometimes I say, listen, I will summarize to the patient. When I get to that point where I feel like we've done everything, thought of everything, tried everything that I have in my bag of tricks, and we're not getting anywhere, I say, listen, this is what tests we've done. These are the therapies we've tried. You're not responding to anything. So I'm not really sure where to go from here, to be perfectly honest. I'm out of ideas. So I think we're going to have to get another opinion because I don't know what else to do for you. I'm just, I don't, I don't know. And I say I don't know a lot. That's an important <laughs> an important thing to say, which I think needs to be taught more in fellowship, is that you need to admit when you don't know things. And there's a lot I don't know and that we don't know. How do patients respond? How do patients respond? Some patients get annoyed. <laughs> um, you know, they say like, well, why don't you know? I say, because I don't know. I just don't know anything about that. When they want me to know about... I don't know, mast cell activation syndrome or autonomic dysfunction or things that I don't, I I really don't know much about. And I don't think anybody knows that much about, and they get frustrated. And I say, you know, I hear your frustration. I hear, I hear it. I think in that situation, I just try to validate their feelings, but sometimes you just have to say, look, I don't think we're, we're getting anywhere. I mean, and in terms of ending a relationship, that's, a negative relationship, like a patient who's disruptive in the office or consistently rude and just not appropriate with the office staff. We have very clear cut rules about that. And we'll just say, listen, you get a one or two strikes, but 
maybe you're anxious when you're coming in, so you're short with everybody, but you cannot treat our staff this way. And if you can't behave and you can't be kind as we are to you, then you're going to have to find another practice. And that's it. And some patients just apologize and say, you know, I'm just so worried. I'm so anxious. I, I get, you know, I say the wrong thing, but most people will just then get angry and leave. Well, I think it's very hard for people coming out of training and everyone generally wants to do well for the patient. You want to try your hardest. You want to make them feel better. You want to do a good job. And honestly, you know, it's a little bit like any other service industry, a little bit where you're trying to, although it's someone's health. And so it can be hurtful when you're trying your best and the patient isn't, is either upset that you're not doing more or is resentful or is inappropriate to staff. And it's easy, I think, for someone coming out of training or who puts a lot, you know, who cares so deeply to take it personally. I know I do. And then I call Jessica. (laughs) We have to find that kind of line of realizing that it's honestly, a lot of it's not personal. There's a lot of emotions that people deal with on a day-to-day basis. And a lot of this isn't personal and we can only do the best we can with the expectations and limitations and time that we have. And maybe someone else can do a better job on another day, but it can be very upsetting when you've gone above and beyond for someone and they're not appreciative. I would say that's definitely frustrating and a challenge. I mean, we're, you know, if you're a very empathetic provider, you really are going to, especially when somebody has been feeling so horribly for so long and they've sought out care with so many other providers and you just say, okay, I'm going to make them better, or I'm going to try my hardest. And when they don't, I think, acknowledge that you're putting in all this time and effort and they're sort of not so kind back. It can be really frustrating and it could definitely sort of lead to that tension where you think like, why am I working so hard for this patient who is just not thankful? (laughs) So, I mean, that can be a challenge. So I think sometimes when you get further out into your practice, you sort of learn how to set boundaries a little better. I had this problem early on in my practice where I was you know, staying late every night, talking to people forever on the phone, calling 600 other providers, you know, and trying to coordinate care. And sometimes you just have to draw the line when you, you've done everything you can do. That's all you can do. Can you speak to, so it seems, and maybe I'm picking up on something that's not there, but it seems like Erica, Jessica serves as a little bit as a mentor as you come into the practice, just referencing it already twice. Other than that kind of talking to your partners or your colleagues, what other ways did you guys learn these skills? Is it just life experiences? Is it is things that mentors and fellowship showed you? Or is it really just when you're in practice, you kind of learn these things and figure out what the right balance for you is? I think that's what it is. I think you emulate, you know, I I definitely have my mentors on my shoulder and I hear what they're saying in terms of clinical. I have these little, in terms of clinical recommendations and how to proceed in terms of the medical aspect, but the social, emotional and the access issues and the creating boundaries. And, you know, at least for me, I didn't see a lot of that in my training. And so that I had to kind of figure, still kind of figuring out on my own. So I do think when you start in your first job having not only a career mentor, but also kind of a, I don't know how to explain it, but, you know, just in terms of navigating your practice and your social, emotional well-being. So all of these things need to be addressed and, and, you know, guided as you're starting out. Right. I mean, I would say, listen, in my fellowship, we had 
and my residency, we had our own patient panels in clinic. We were responsible for them. It wasn't like we were seeing attendings patients. We were seeing our own patients. We had continuity clinic. But I never received phone calls from a single patient. I did not get one message. You know, the only time I would talk to them outside of the clinic was when I was maybe calling to give them some results. So the real world did not, nobody prepared me for the sort of onslaught of extra work, the emails and the portal messages and the phone calls and the mountains of results and how to manage all of that, that you really get zero of in training. And so that is actually a lot of the meat and potatoes of practice is sort of finding that balance between office work, being being in the, well, I should say clinical care, being in the room with the patient or scoping the patient versus all the other stuff that you have to do after work or between patients. That is the biggest feedback we get from graduating fellows is I didn't realize what you were doing behind the scenes all the time. You said you were doing it, but I didn't get the weight of that. So that seems like something we can highlight here for the future gastroenterologists out there. Are there ways that you have developed like a skill set or like adapted to navigating that kind of, I think of it as like drinking from a faucet or a fire hose maybe at times? Time management skills. (laughs) You know, this is the ever never ending challenge of what people used to call work-life balance and now is called work-life integration is sort of when to turn it off at the end of the day and how to deal with all the other responsibilities just outside of just what you're doing in front of the patient. And that is challenging. I mean, I think it's time management is most of it and boundary setting. Well, I think another change from fellowship is also you're usually in fellowship in a closed system where everyone is kind of one volt message or my chart message away in terms of communicating with other subspecialists, whereas in private practice, care is very fragmented and you have to really pick up the phone and try and get someone on the phone to communicate about a patient, which can take a long time. So that's also something I didn't realize the extent of. But yeah, in terms of how to try and navigate this, I think the first thing is you can't see 30 patients or even 20 patients. Like a patient is not just a however many minute visit, they have labs to follow up, things to follow up, you know, there's follow up. So build your schedule if it's possible, that is something that is feasible to do, you know, so maybe that's 30 minute slots. That's what I do 30 minute slots for news and follow up. And if you have five extra minutes, then you can follow something else up before the next patient. I think the other thing is, although it's hard for me to do, try not to respond to portal messages early in the day because you'll probably get three in response. So I try and do, you know, results and stuff in the morning and then messaging and answering questions towards the end of the day and then trying to figure out what's important for you. For me, I have three young children. So it's important for me that, you know, 530 to 8 is my family time. And so I try as best as I can to be home by then. And eight o'clock, I turn back on my computer and finish my work and do all the other things I need to do. So that's as balanced as I can get so far. So that's pretty amazing and challenging to figure out exactly what that cutoff needs to be for you, your family, for life outside the hospital. You spoke a little bit about a kind of collaborations. Could you guys tease that out a little bit? So in a clinical practice world, albeit with 105 partners, that sounded like if I got this right, as you're looking for surgeons, nutritionists, psychiatrists, psychologists, everyone that we need to work with to have a successful clinical practice, how do you track them down? How do you 
navigate those relationships? You know, I think when you first start, you you probably want to talk to your partners about who they use. And then you usually start with that. You know, what's, who, which laparoscopic surgeon do you like? Which IBD surgeon do you like? Who do you like for hellermyotomy? Whatever it is. And get a sense of what the community is like that you're going to refer to. And then you may or may not like that person that you're being told to refer to. And you start to sort of get to know your own community over time. But I always have ongoing conversations with other providers. So, for example, for a long time, I would have a happy hour with a prime, an internist who I think is really great, a nephrologist who is really great, and a rheumatologist who is really outstanding. And the four of us would just sit around and have cocktails and then talk about people in the community and who everybody liked for what. You know, you should refer to this urologist for kidney stones. No, you should refer to here for this. And, you know, you sort of get a sense of who's in the community. And, you know, when I started, I talked to my older partners, but they didn't, the older partners didn't know the younger specialists, other specialists in the community. So I sort of got to know the community on my own. Being active in a local medical society helps, being, you know, active in your in your hospital, if you're hospital-based at all, to get to know people and sort of having those conversations outside of work is really helpful. And then really the most important thing is getting, you know, once you figure out who your people are, get everybody's phone number and email address, because I don't have time to be calling up other providers in the middle of the day and waiting on hold for their, you know, whoever front desk person to go get them. I am texting people all day long. I have this patient with whatever they need to be seen right away. Is there any way you can fit them in? You know, or however it is that you need to get the job done. And then I created a list. So when newer partners come on, I give them the list of people I think that are good at particular things. They can take it or leave it, but it's at least somewhat of a roadmap. It can be hard to piece it all together. That is extremely challenging as Erica could probably elaborate more, especially in the IBD world where you really, really need a coordinated team. So in the IBD world, do you have like a patient clinical coordinator? You have your own infusion center? Yes. So Capital Digestive Care has three infusion centers, maybe soon to be four. So in my division, we have an infusion center at one of our offices. It's a six chair bed. We infuse about a hundred or so patients a week. And then we have the research division. And then, you know, my goal is in the next six months to create this grant to essentially have a nurse navigator for complex IBD patients to use the, there's a, it's complicated, but a chronic care model that's been approved by CMS in 2015 that can reimburse for non-face-to-face time. So to try and essentially have, be able to take care of our, our sickies a lot better than me getting portal messages every couple of days and holding hands myself, having a team to do so. So that's the goal, you know, creating more of a formal, urgent IBD visit option. And then once we can kind of have uh, have this, then develop the structure to have ancillary services like nutrition and behavioral health, which is at least in our area, hard to even get for anyone at any time. There is no one available. Yeah, nobody's available. Nobody takes insurance. So if the patient does not have the wherewithal, they're in big trouble in terms of getting support. Emotional support is very, very very challenging. So those are the things we're working on. I was going to ask, like, in both your fields for the IBS work and the IBD work and my esophageal work, the role of psychopharmacology is so important. Is that a skill set that you guys developed in fellowship or is that something you developed 
with your collaborators and really in practice because I find fellows are intimidated to use it. And as my practice has evolved, I'm like much quicker to pull the trigger on all the functional disorders that are so prevalent for all the populations the four of us see in this conversation. Yeah, I mean, I provide a ton of TCAs, SSRIs. For example, you know, a lot of our IBD patients are depressed and we don't ask enough. And when we do ask, they go, yeah, I'm depressed and I'm anxious. And then I say, you know, do you have a therapist? No. Do you have a psych? Does your primary care willing to talk to you about it and and prescribe you anything? Not really. You know, so then I'm the one prescribing the antidepressants because I can't leave them hanging. It they need something. They do need therapy, but they also need medication a lot of them. So I had to learn it. I mean, I think I learned most of it when I was an internal medicine resident, so I'm pretty out of date at this point, but I think I have some basic skills and then, you know, I read a lot of the literature, I keep up to date. Every conference I go to, I always go to the sessions on functional disorders and what medications can I prescribe? What can I do? Because that is the majority of what we see. And we do not have enough tools in our armamentarium. I mean, for example, a patient that I that I have who has bloating, just like everybody else. I mean, the whole everybody sees probably at least 75% of the people walking the door bloated. But I have a patient who has gastroparesis. She has a lot of issues. She has autonomic dysfunction, et cetera. She has, we think pelvic floor dysfunction, which she's worked on. But now I actually think that her bloating is abdominopelvic dyssynergia, abdominophrenic dyssynergia. Sorry. We cannot find a single person who does biofeedback for this. And I did a literature search. There's like a group in Spain and her PT is who does pelvic floor PT is absolutely willing to try it, but she doesn't have a protocol. And I have no idea how to get a protocol. She's asking me, I'm going like, how am I going to find that? So, you know, all the therapies that are written about in the literature, like cognitive behavioral therapy and gut-directed hypnotherapy and all this stuff, I have no way of identifying who those providers are in my community. So I tell the patients I think they should pursue that. And they're like, well, who should I go to? And I say, I don't know. I mean, it's very challenging. I really wish that Rome for people could also come up with directories of all the people that can do this, that we can send the patients to. There's like an all roads lead to Rome type. It's there. We, it's so true. We have it there. <laughs> yeah. We need help. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure that that's available in every academic center either. I mean, I think you've only got a couple centers that have those resources and it becomes frustrating in the community because, you know, you've tried all the things that the guidelines say to do and they failed all of those things. So then you get to the sort of last thing that's recommended by the Mayo, but it's only available at the Mayo. What are you supposed to do? Erica, thoughts? I mean, it's challenging. <laughs> Send to you. No. <laughs> <laughs> Next, I'm going to learn how to do biofeedback therapy myself. Yes. For for the diaphragm. <laughs> the diaphragm. The We're moving diaphragmatic away from the anal disease to the diaphragm. That's right. Got to take care of the whole patient. <laughs> but yeah, so as I mean, we're... you know, it, well, so pelvic floor stuff, at least there are enough pelvic floor physical therapists in the community. So people with pelvic pain, which is more my my thing, we have people to refer to. I was just going to ask for the fellows that probably want to know how you 
kind of split up your clinical time. I know that you were saying that you have four days of clinical time and one that you're spending with the Infusion Center and working on research projects. I was wondering if you could just give them like a quick breakdown of scope time versus clinic time and numbers that you see. Yeah. So I do one day a week of, of telehealth. That's probably 16 to eight, 16 or so patients, 17 patients. And then I do one to two days of scoping per week. And I do in 30 minute blocks and then one to two days, depending on that, of in-person clinic. And then that one kind of admin research day. And then once a month, I'll scope at the hospital for patients that can't be at our endoscopy center. Jessica, for you, what's your breakdown? Let's see. I probably do one to one and a half days of colonoscopy and endoscopy in our outpatient center. Then I probably do one and a half sometimes two days, depending on the week of high resolution anoscopy. And then the rest of the time is office patients. I do have my high resolution anoscopies are sort of woven into my office schedule because it's an office-based procedure, as well as my research patients are also sort of interwoven into my office days. So, but I do, I work five days a week I probably would have would like some admin time, but I've chosen not to. That's my evenings. No, I mean, really, when you're in private practice, if you're in the structure of private practice where you, as we call it, eat what you kill, where your your salary is based on our views and collections, then you can sort of decide how how you want it to be to some degree. When you split everything equally, then it's a little bit less in your control, I think. So as we kind of wind down this conversation, one of the last questions we'd like to ask all of our guests on the podcast is if they could comment on about what the best advice they got early in their career, doesn't have to be in fellowship, but what are the one or two pieces of advice that really stuck with them as they kind of started their career? Well, at least my advice would be try and figure out what you want. What do you want your career to look like? Because not all academic centers are consistent with academia and not all private practice, you know, are fair in, you know, a private practice world. So what are the values that that are important to you and what is the care and where do you feel like you can make a difference and how would that look like if you could your own kind of job up and then try and find a place that's consistent with those values, because sometimes you'll find it in a, in a place you don't you wouldn't have necessarily thought and kind of try and, you know, look under the hood and try and figure out if that's, if you can be successful in what you want to do at the place that you're looking at, because it'll probably become very apparent as if, if, if it's a right fit for you. Awesome. Erica stole my, I, that's the same advice that I got, which is really be true to yourself, figure it out what it is that you want. And it's okay to change directions too. You know, if you start out in one field and realize it's not for you, don't get stuck or you'll be unhappy. I mean, this is for life. <laughs> so, you know, make sure it works for you. And it's okay to ask for help. That too. Yes, for sure. Ask for help and yeah, admit what you don't know and either learn it or decide that you don't need to know it and you just have to be honest about it. Yeah. yeah. Nina, what were you going to say? I think a lot of people feel right out of fellowship, they have to land their perfect job right away because I'm working towards a partnership and you know, I have to put in the two years so that I can make partner and then, you know, reap the benefits of the ASC and things like that. But it's totally okay to change. I think I read a statistic where, you know, you know, 
more than half people change their first job. And that's completely fine. It's not a failure. You just have to figure out what you want at the end of the day. Yeah. I think Absolutely. it's an important point for us all. Yeah. So just before we go, where can listeners reach you? Are you on Twitter? Is it email? I'm not going to give out your cell digits. Don't worry. <laughs> email. Either of you are on Twitter? Oh, my. I'm not on Twitter. I am. I'm old. I'll follow. Oh. I didn't really tweet. Uh, <laughs> All right. Well, we'll 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 put them in the email, in the liner notes of the email. episode for you guys. Yeah. Fair enough. But thank you both for your time. It was wonderful speaking with both of you today. Thank, thank you. you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the AGA podcast. To reach us, please email us at aga podcast at gastro org or follow us on Twitter at MJ Whitson MD at Nina Nandy MD and at CSCMD, podcast production done by Resonant Recordings. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening, and have a good one.